This is an ABC podcast. When I am an old woman, I shall wear purple. I've always loved that poem. Warning, it's called, by Jenny Joseph, where she describes reaching that point in life where you don't really worry about what other people think. This International Women's Day, some older women tell us what it's like getting to 70, 80, 90. If our guests are anything to go by, there's a certain perspective that comes from weathering decades of life storms and for some also the ability to deadlift more than your own body weight. I can't wait to introduce you to them soon on Life Matters from Nam, Melbourne. If you've made it to 70 or 80 or 90 years old, you've probably seen some pretty big changes in the world and in yourself. And those changes don't stop as you age. Building boats, gaining PhDs and climate change campaigning are just some of the new passions of the women that Maggie Kirkman has interviewed for her new book, Time of Our Lives, Celebrating Older Women. Maggie Kirkman is with us today. She's also a psychologist and a senior research fellow in women's health at Monash University. Maggie, welcome. Thank you, Hilary. Now, you described the women that you interviewed as ordinary women who've lived extraordinary lives. Do you think we underestimate how interesting people's lives are once they're beyond a certain age? Oh, I think that's definitely the case. I think uh, when young people look at old people, they just see the wrinkles and the redistributed hair and uh, people who are perhaps a little bit frail and forget that they have lived the lives that young people live, plus all of their futures, plus uh, having lots of uh, capacity to reflect on it and to have new thoughts and be wise. So I think it would be a great idea for everyone to listen to the stories of old women to find out the exciting things they've done. Well, for women, you write in the book, it's, it's layers of assumptions that are on us, isn't it? Not just about our age but our gender. Oh definitely yes so sexism combines with ageism to make life very difficult and old women are often completely invisible literally I sometimes think. I tell the story in the book of when I was walking down the street last year pushing my shopping trolley in Lonsdale Street Melbourne and four men came towards me probably middle-aged. I couldn't go to the left without crashing into the wall, I couldn't go to the right without going into the traffic and when the man walked straight into my shopping trolley, he was furious. So I said, well, the ground didn't open up and swallow me and I couldn't levitate. But they clearly had just not seen me. I mean, I'm, I'm a fairly prominent size. I'm tall. I'm glad pushing a shopping trolley, but was invisible. Well, and you're wearing an amazing green jacket too, so you probably were just <laughs> popping colour at them as well. And I should have worn purple today. I regret that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not mandatory, but yes. Uh, we're speaking with Maggie Kirkman, who's a psychologist. She's a senior research fellow in women's health at Monash Uni, and she's the author of this new book, Time of Our Lives, Celebrating Older Women. Tell us about some of these women, Maggie, because they've got really diverse lives and passions, haven't they? They have. So there's Mig Dan who uh, received a PhD at 80, and she was looking at, uh, she was doing it in fine art, talking about complex uh, philosophical ideas and doing her own sculpture. Uh, Then there's uh, other women uh, who, as you say, built a boat. And then Uh, rode it. And then rode it around the bay. And as her son said to her, but mum, you can't swim. But I she can kept row. rowing, yes, and she said that when she no longer cares about her hair, she'll take up uh, swimming. <laughs> <laughs> when will that day yes, come? When, when will that day come? Although it is interesting how these things change. I used never to leave the house without wearing makeup. And I was encouraged a bit. First of all, when I took up running when I was 64 and my daughter said, nobody will take you as a serious runner if you wear makeup. Oh. And then lockdown. And so I've 
taken to going out without it and nobody cares, nobody notices. And that is one of the great things about getting older. But in the book there are women who've uh, developed plant nurseries, uh, who've uh, campaigned for the environment, who've uh, continued teaching. One 92-year-old has her own uh, tutoring service. It's just everything you can think of, from volunteering, work, paid work, and all kinds of imaginative and creative work. I loved re- reading about the woman who's a civ- civil celebrant, oh. and she has taken up orienteering, but I thought, what a great perspective as a civil celebrant, because you would have seen so many relationships and lives come and go. That's Rosemary Salvaris, and uh, it was interesting the way she began being a civil celebrant. She was a principal in a school and had some deaths of students and staff during the year and thought that she just didn't know how to manage everyone's grief. Thought she was taking up a single subject at Monash and it turned out to be a postgraduate qualification. And then she became a civil celebrant, as you say. Uh, And uh, I think that has continued her perspective. She loves doing what she was doing. There was a while where she couldn't do funerals because she'd had a baby uh, die. But uh, then she started doing the funerals of friends and so on. And she says that in orienteering, she doesn't try to compete with the young people, but people her age look out. She (laughs) she wants to win. (laughs) Well, and there's some fantastic celebrations of achievements coming through on our text line to Maggie Kirkman. Pauline says, I'm turning 76 and I love learning languages. At present, I'm enjoying Latin, French, Italian and Dutch. And another one says, I'm 58 and I just bought my first horse. So I imagine right off into old age for as long as I can. Do send through your wonderful moments as an older uh, woman as well. We're speaking with Maggie Kirkman, who's written this book celebrating the lives of older women. It's called Time of Our Lives. And with us too is Bee Toes. She's one of the women that Maggie interviewed for the book uh, in her late 70s at the moment. Bee, welcome. Thank you. Now, a disclaimer, I do know Bee. I've met you and uh, I know your family. You were 76 when you took up powerlifting. Was that something that you had imagined that you would do ever? Never. I've never been an, an athlete or an activist or at all. So it's, it's been a real change in my life. Well, and has it been a smooth journey from this, you know, five foot three, 90 pound weakling to the uh, Amazon that you are today who can deadlift more than your own body weight? Or did you have to take some side trips along the way? It was smooth because I had an excellent coach. She lives in London and she coached me during uh, COVID. And that was very, very smooth. The only hiccup I had was last se- September and I fell and I damaged my knee again. So that is the vicissitudes of life and old age, isn't it? They they do come back to to hurt us from time to time. But B, it's really fascinating how in the book the story is that you you struggled to open this jar of passata at a family dinner that you were creating, and that sparked the journey. Was it really that? Because you can get those little doodads that open jars. It it seems like maybe there was more going on for you. No, no, it's like absolutely all. I've been a strong woman. I grew up on a farm, and so it was something I could always do, and then suddenly I couldn't do it. And my son said, well, do the farmer's walk. That means you pick up the heaviest thing you can, and you carry it as far as you can, and you put it down. And that makes you stronger. And it does. Yes, so so you do that in one direction with one hand and then back in the other hand. What, What did you try that with? Suitcases loaded with bricks. Wow. 
Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have anything else in the house, so I used that. And then I thought, oh, I'm going to damage myself. And I asked a friend who is American, but she lives for Thailand. And I said, would you coach me? And she said, no, but I have a friend who will. And that's how I met my coach. Well, and awesome. yeah, I mean, I'm wondering, B, what kind of images of older women you grew up with? What did you think was in store for you that, you know, might have been quite different to the, the powerlifting image? I have a grandmother who has a mother of 12 living children. And she was had osteoporosis very badly, could hardly lift her head. So that wasn't a good image. And on my father's side, I had mother, a grandmother of five who was completely dependent on her husband. So that wasn't an image that I wanted to have either. So this was not something that I was patterning myself on anybody. Mm. Well, what kind of changes and benefits has the strength training brought you, Be How are things different for you now? Well, life is just easier. I, I can walk confidently. I can climb stairs. I can go walking on the beach. I can walk. 20 kilometers without drawing a breath it's life is just easier and you know making beds used to be a pain in the butt but it isn't anymore and just i can't i can't even begin to talk about it traveling is easier i can lift my own suitcase put it up on the rack above the seats um it's just easier yeah and it sounds like you're less dependent on people around you I've never been dependent, and I've sort of warded it off by being stronger, yeah? Yeah. And what's fun is going to a gym now, because it's not about what I look like. It's about, what I, am I stronger today than I was yesterday? And so the girls in tights and the, the boys in, you know, whatever, doing whatever they're doing isn't any of my business. My business is dealing with the, the iron at the end of my barbell and, and lifting it up. That's my business. And it's really confidence-inspiring for me. Yes. Um, yeah, it's an amazing feeling getting stronger. We're speaking with B Toes, who's one of the amazing number of women in Maggie Kirkman's new book, Time of Our Lives. Maggie, I, I was really intrigued to see that uh, B, like a lot of the other women, was surprised when you said you wanted to interview them. What was going on there, do you think? Yes, People said, women said, nobody's been interested in our stories. And I, I think that underlines all of this, that you can stick with your stereotypes and see old women as just helpless or scary old witches. Whereas if you know their stories, you see that they're a repository of so many exciting and interesting things. Well, and the, the form that you gave them was headed Silent Generation, because this is the, the name that's given to the people born within this span. How accurate or useful is that? In one way, it's useful because it, it does demonstrate that these women grew up in an era where they're expected to be quiet and non-complaining. Their parents had come through their depression. Uh, there'd been wars and they just had to get on with life. But in practice for personal experience, many of them rejected it very roundly and with some very forceful language. So they have individually been quite uh, vocal, I think, although many of them did conform to what was expected of them when they were young. 
They had to give up work when they married. They were expected to look after their children and their husbands and then their parents. So a few of the women only blossomed after all of those responsibilities left them, although some had to struggle all of their lives. And you see these diverse stories. Well, yes, and you note in the book too that, you know, some people were uh, identified as feminists, some didn't, and some were kind of in the middle. And, yeah, there's a diversity of experience as there is among all women, all genders, all kinds of people. B Toes, I want to come back to your story for a moment because when we talk about fascinating stories that people don't think are particularly interesting because they're their own stories you were born in a Mennonite community in Canada and apparently your son has said that the biggest journey you made was from the farm to university not from you know traveling intercontinental how big was the contrast for you between that family environment and where you found yourself in in uh, the higher education well, it was a 180-degree switch, and I made the mistake of many young people of throwing out all of my upbringing in exchange for what I was offered at university. And I think that's pretty common. You just take the opposite side of the same coin. And so that was my initial reaction. Went from being a conservative, Christian, God-fearing, man-fearing man, a woman to being an atheist, in the, like almost overnight. And... I think that my maturity, it took me at least 10, 15 years to actually realize that it isn't one or the other, but it's actually, you have to think about it. And you have to choose what's right, not just knee-jerk reaction against what you're brought up with. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Well, and it resonates with the conversation you had with your grade 11 teacher that sounds like it was quite a pivotal point for you. Tell us about that. Oh, his name was Jim Revick, and I hope he's still alive. He said to me, why bother? Why bother going to uni? You will just get married and have a baby. And I thought, no, I won't. (laughs) So I am going to finish school, though you did get married and have a baby pretty soon after that, didn't you? Oh, well, for the the time, I was late. I was 26 when I had my son. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting, isn't it? Well, yeah. and looking at how the time has changed is fascinating, isn't it? Because, you know, the, the generation that your children are growing up in and grandchildren, the, the perspective is so different. That's right. At 23, you were just starting, and I was already married at 22. So, yeah, it's different. Yes. Well, and just one other strand of your story, B, that, that stood out in your chapter in Maggie Kirkman's book, Time of Our Lives. You mentioned how you struggled to be taken seriously when you tried to get support for problem drinking as an adult. And I bring this up because I think it's something that, you know, a lot of people will will uh, find familiar to them. And it's, you know, it's it's an extra element of the diversity of our lives. What happened there that people didn't believe you when you said you had a problem? Well, I drink like like a Canadian, to be a generalist. You can't show that you're drunk if you're a Canadian. Australians, you're allowed to be drunk and noisy and carry on. But Canadians can't. And I was born in Canada. So in Australia, I drank uh, quietly. And so I would be completely drunk and completely blacked out, but still quiet. I was never noisy. So the two people that I asked, one a priest and one a colleague, said, no, you still got a job. You're fine. And I thought, well, that's not really normal because I'm taking photographs at parties so I can remember who's there. That's not normal. And it was uh, until I was, I was in my mid-50s before I actually quit. 
because I couldn't believe that that I didn't, I knew that I had a problem, but I didn't know how to address it because nobody would acknowledge it. And finally, I did it myself. So I was, that was the end of my alcoholism. Yeah, and and it's yeah, it's an amazing journey. I highly recommend reading a lot of the chapters in this book. It's called Time of Our Lives by Maggie Kirkman. You're hearing from B. Toes, who features in the book. Maggie, we're thinking just about the level of change that people have witnessed. I mean, these are people who didn't grow up with the internet, didn't grow up with computers of any kind, didn't grow up with social media. Uh, what are some of the assumptions around older women's uh, proficiency with technology that you've seen play out? Well, it's assumed that uh, you can't manage it and that you'll fall apart if somebody puts a, a, a phone in front of you, uh, much less computer. And some women did have difficulties with it, but others are highly proficient and have been using all kinds of complicated technology since they, they emerged and are themselves in their 80s and 90s training other people to use technology. So uh, I interviewed uh, Judith Harley, who's in her 90s and an artist and writer who paints every day and took up writing in her 60s. And while I was talking to her, she, she took a phone call on her uh, smartwatch and uh, was dealing with all kinds of complicated things on her computer. She knew what she was doing. And she said that was one of the things that has kept her connected in old age, mm. that she can communicate with people like this. So it is important. And I think when we're talking about how we help people develop uh, happy old ages where they are still contributing to society. We need to make technology available and we need to help train women. Well, and B, I can hear you nodding and smiling in the background. I, I do hope yes. that you're posting selfies of your powerlifting, but you're also a big traveller. I imagine that you've had to navigate lots of new digital tech in that and just in staying in touch with your far-flung family. I do. I, I love technology, though. And it was because of my students. I used to be a teacher in my previous life. And they would say to me, you can't break it. Just press the button. (laughs) (laughs) Are you sure? And I can remember students giving me the phone and saying, do it. And that was how I learned. I don't know. That whole you can't break it thing, I think if you've ever lost an essay in an Apple IIe, (laughs) you're a bit wary. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. but I do have uh, the cloud and I've had the cloud since it was available because of that. That's true. It's just fascinating looking through some of the experience in this, experiences in this book. And Maggie, I, I was really excited too to see you say, look, I, I note that not everyone's experience of ageing will be the same and it's quite dependent on your material circumstances and what how they've played out through your life. What are some of the ways that we can ensure that more older women can live up to their full potential as a society? What do we need to do? I think we need to ensure that we have a community in which everybody can participate and that will take a personal engagement with other people, it will take societies and communities that welcome old people or people of any age and policies that uh, allow people to participate. So the idea of the 15 minute or the 20 minute community can be helpful if people can walk to wherever they need to go in order to contribute, they don't need to be isolated in warehouses. And if uh, 
people are encouraged to mix. I loved the ABC documentaries, Old People's Home for Four-Year-Olds and Old People's Home for Teenagers. It just demonstrated how everybody benefited from mixing. So we need policies and an environment that encourages this. And that supports young people as well as old people. And I think a... Uh, a good old age begins probably before birth. You need to assist parents to be able to parent well. And uh, you need to ensure that children are nurtured and encouraged and not incarcerated. And when uh, Professor Jane Fisher and I earlier interviewed women from the baby boomer generation about their mental health, it was evident that what had happened throughout their lives contributed to their good mental health in older age. And if they had not been supported, if their parents had not been supported, if they'd experienced cruelty and violence, it was very difficult to have a good old age. But that's something that everybody supports. You can't just rely on qualities of the individual. Maggie and B, it's been so wonderful speaking with you today. B, I look forward to having you over to my house to open my Posada jars because I think there's an inequity going on here. And Maggie Kirkman, <laughs> lovely to chat. And Maggie Kirkman, author of Time of Our Lives, Celebrating Older Women, Senior Researcher in Women's Health at Monash Uni. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And bye, B. Lovely to talk to you again. <laughs> You're listening to Life Matters. And I wanted to say, you know, B's list of who she is and what she does, powerlifter, teacher, author, volunteer, mother, grandmother, world traveller, lifelong learner. That's just half the list. Uh, so many texts coming in too. Catherine says, I just published my first novel at 73. It came out in February. It was the Agent SMH pick of the week. I plan to write many more. I took up pickleball two years ago at 77, says Beth. I'm addicted, but I've never felt better. My lovely wife, says uh, Mark in Mittagong, the light of my life at age 69 still regularly goes to ballet lessons, loves it and can still do point. I think that's brilliant. Love to share more of your celebrations as the program goes on. Now, we think we know water here in Australia, how precious it is, but should we be drawing more on the oldest knowledge about water management here? What that might look like next on ABCRN. I still sometimes can't get over the fact that you turn a tap on and fresh drinkable water comes out, in our cities anyway. Yes, my childhood was a little interesting at times, but it's a really useful perspective not taking fresh water for granted, especially with our changing climate and contamination of some of the fresh water we've relied on for generations. We need to think about new and, more importantly, old ways of caring for this vital resource. Bradley Mogridge is Associate Professor in Indigenous Water Science at the University of Canberra and a proud Murray man from the Kamilaroi Nation. Bradley, welcome. Yeah, I'm Hilary. How are you going? Good. Well, thank you. Womanjika, thanks for talking to us. You're an Indigenous water scientist and hydrogeologist, so you study groundwater. What yep. made you interested in studying the water underneath us? Uh, I think it, it was... Uh, water was early on. Um, I realised you had to drink it to live. Uh, so it was a, a wake-up call that, we needed to protect it. And um, later in life, I think <clears throat> I did geology straight out of school and uh, moved to environmental science and then realised that groundwater was a uh, culturally a, a strong connection, but also as a water source, it was uh, something because it was out of sight, out of mind, we needed stronger protections to, to look at how we how we manage it and how we share it and and obviously how 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 it's used and obviously that quality as well. So yeah, I 
took on a master's in hydrogeology in early 2000s and um, I was looking, I wanted to look at urban salinity because it was just starting to rear its head in um, Western Sydney uh, at the time where I, you know, where I lived, or where I grew up as well. So um, groundwater was becoming, um, and yeah, as we were, and then we moved into the millennium drought and and obviously things like that. So water was was high on the on the agenda, and I think groundwater was a key part of that. Well, and your Camilleroy and your country includes the Great Artesian Basin. Tell us a bit about how special that aquifer is. Yeah, look, the you know, I suppose our our old people knew it was it was ancient water and it was special water, and you know, in a dry landscape, if you've got water coming, you know, water coming out of the ground, that's um, the essence of life and and it's it's drinkable and 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 it sustains you and and it's there most of the time you know you're gonna put every effort into protecting that and i think our connection to the great artesian basin was strong because you know part of the the camilleroy nation is you know is is spring country um we do have a lot of springs in in our in our space and, and a lot of rivers as well but also the the connection to that is is diverse um there are you know strong rules around who can access that but also uh, a lot of the groundwater places are women's places so you know i need to be very careful about some of the places i i can uh, or visit or, or intend to visit because you know they, they could be actually women's specific sites from from my nation and i don't want to upset the aunties that's yeah. No one wants to upset the aunties. That could go very badly for you. We're yeah. speaking with Bradley Mogridge, who's associate professor in Indigenous Water Science at the University of Canberra. Bradley, are we more reliant on groundwater than other countries? And I guess we should probably say, you know, what what kind of water are we looking at in Australia? What is groundwater versus surface water? Yeah, look, we're probably as, as you look at the continent of Australia, you know, like. You move away from the coastal regions where you know you you have a somewhat reliable um, water source, as in rain, um, and you have surface water rivers and things like that. And then there, as you move away from the coastal regions, Australia is you know seventy percent semi-arid, and there's some really arid parts of the the country. Some of the driest parts, you know, Australia is the driest inhabited continent on earth. So, understanding water and knowing water is a key part of of existing on the continent of Australia. So groundwater itself is is becoming more highly um, required for, for drinking water needs. So, you know, as you move, as I said, as you move away from the sort of the riverine country, let's say the riverine country in the southeast, let's say the Murray-Darling Basin, um, and obviously in the north you have the wet and dry season, and so you'll have the wet that actually, you know, recharges these groundwater systems. So, you know, there's springs that come to life after the wet season and they will dry up towards the end of the the, um, the dry season. So um, groundwater is, a key, you know, Perth has a huge reliance on, on groundwater as a drinking water supply. And, you know, a lot of towns uh, actually tap into to aquifers. You know, that's the water that moves through. Like it's, Some of these rocks are like a, a huge sponge where you can tap into. And so the Great Artesian Basin, you tap a hole into a, um, the groundwater system and this beautiful water comes out. Sometimes it's pretty hot and, you know, it's it's high in minerals and things like that. And so there's there's actually human health benefits for, for accessing this water. But as we, at modern day um, groundwater use, you know, we have to be more careful because 
some of these some of these sites are naturally contaminated with with minerals and chemicals and and salts and things like that but Sometimes, you know, it, it is a human impact of development that has contaminated these water sources as well. So, mm. you know, you've got to be very careful because, you you know, you drill a hole in the ground and sometimes water comes out, but you don't know the quality of that water. Um, well, I'm, Bradley, I'm really interested in how much um, Indigenous water science and knowledge is being drawn on when it comes to the way we manage water in this country. What What are some of the uh, elements or aspects of Indigenous water knowledge that you'd see you'd like to see taken more notice of? Oh, I think the one of the primary ones for me, especially, is um, how we value water. We don't value it as the basis of life um, without it you die sort of scenario because when you think about surface water and groundwater how it's managed how it's shared how it's um you know policies around all, all that sort of stuff we we see it as a commodity and there's a dollar value put on on that water and you know we we look at the murray darling basin itself and you know if water is 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 tradable um, it, it was separated as a or decoupled from land uh, many years ago, and it, water has its own market in the Murray Darling Basin. So, and if you had land, you had water back in the day, and uh, Aboriginal people, you know, some communities did have land um, that may have may have had water, um, and then it became a licensed activity to actually extract, and then that water market was created, and we were. F- well, I believe Aboriginal people were further disenfranchised because if you didn't have land, you didn't have water, and then when water and land were separated, you then have to go to a, a market and buy water. So, for Aboriginal people in the in 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 the basin, you know they they need to actually go to the market and buy it if it's available. And the market at the moment it's fully or over allocated in the basin. So, you know it's it's a it's fraught with, and we are further disenfranchised in the water space. So. The way we value water is a key component of that, I believe, and we don't we don't value it for what it is. Um, as I said, it's a it's 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 seen as a dollar value rather than you know um, importance for for all of life. So, other bits is how we how we understand water systems, and that's part of um, what I'm trying to do is is rather than being the researched my you know, the mob, um, I become the researcher to to be a voice. You know, I've been quite lucky. Um, I Unfortunately, I haven't grown up on my country, but I, um, you know, have visited it and always, you know, still got a lot of relatives. Mum's one of 14. So, you know, I've got a lot of um, relations and cousins that are still on country and I still have a reason to go back to country to connect, to reconnect and things like that. So, Understanding water is is a learning aspect. You know, I've been lucky to learn in the Western space, but traditionally, you know, I'm always learning every time I go back to country Mm. about water. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, to see that there's more discussion these days about Indigenous management of land, for example, through fire. Mm. What about Indigenous knowledge about water, like water flows, you know, how we used to talk about uh, swamps and now we talk more about floodplains and wetlands. Is there more um, recognition that um, Indigenous people have important knowledge about how to manage those, those watery spaces? Yeah, definitely. And I suppose wetlands, you know, they're, they're very significant. They have, you know, some of our wetlands have obviously international standing through the Ramsar Convention, but also 
the, the connection and knowledge of these wetlands is that Aboriginal people have uh, from a local point of view is that, you know, these are, these were the, well, are and, and were the supermarkets of the day, you know, that you could get all your resources from a wetland when water was in there. And obviously, you know, being a dry continent, these wetlands do have a drying and wetting scenario. But our advice is not seen as, and our knowledge isn't really filtering into the way we manage these landscapes. You know, they're at the moment they're purely for ecological uh, benefit, um, for the for the benefit of nature. Whereas indigenous knowledge looks at, um, I believe, more a human aspect. Um, a, a connection, you know, we, we look at these wild spaces and, you know, we're rewilding these these places, but they were never wild because humans were there, Aboriginal people were there. Uh, and so that term is is a bit fraught, but um, understanding these water places is, is um, uh, as you started, you know, old knowledge or new systems and new challenges, I think, is, is the way forward. Yeah. Well, there's recently been an announcement for funding for safe water for Indigenous communities because there's this appalling situation, isn't there, Bradley Mogridge, where a lot of particularly remote Indigenous communities just don't have access to drinkable, safe water. Is that funding part of the Closing the Gap funding enough to cover the kinds of infrastructure that are needed? Oh, th- this has been a, a scenario that's been around for a long time. It's not new. Um, there was a report recently and, you know, it, it recommended that to fix some of these challenges, it's going to cost $2.2 billion. Um, so, uh, the, the government committed $150 million and I suppose that, that's a, that's a start. And then how you prioritize that, because some of these communities have water that is not fit for human consumption, you know, whether it's natural, uh, contaminants, as I said, or biological contaminants, you know, from animals, um, spoiling the water, or it could be um, agricultural uh, chemicals or old mine sites, uh, mine leakage. So these sort of industrial chemicals, you know, so there's some real challenges um, around the quality of the water. So whether it's, you know, it's the source water or it's how, how the actual water is treated and managed. So, you know, you move into then the technical aspects and you look at some of the challenges around that because it's, you know, the remote communities, obviously, um, they, it costs money to actually maintain these systems and have the right sources of, of uh, treatment as well. So, you know, our Aboriginal people, where, where these communities have people trained up to actually maintain these systems, they may move on to, to better jobs, you know, and you can't um, judge them for that because, you know, they're just obviously looking to strive or those, that, that knowledge disappears. Mm. Um, and then you have the challenge of untreated water and systems that aren't working to its capability and obviously producing water quality that's fit for human consumption. And then, you know, then you've got the other health issues where would you rather drink warm, salty groundwater or a cold can of a soft drink? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And as you say, you know, you've got to suspend judgment because the, there are rational decisions being made. Bradley, yeah. it's great to chat to you today. I wish we had more time, but thank you so much for giving us a little bit of the benefit of your expertise. Uh, good luck no steering drums. clear of the aunties.
Yeah, no worries. Thank you. <laughs> Bradley Mogridge, Associate Professor in Indigenous Water Science at the University of Canberra and a proud Murray man from the Kamilaroi Nation. You're listening to Life Matters on ABC RN. Imagine being thousands of kilometres away from your daughter and learning that she needs specialised immediate help. You are going to hear how one family managed that next. ABC Listen. Our minds are powerful and complex. Join Sana Kadar to explore everything mental about the mind, the brain, and our behaviour. As you scale this technique up, you can memorise all kinds of things. From negotiating to addiction to AI. The history of brainwashing, emotional intelligence, rudeness, and humour. How does that feel? All in the mind with Sana Kadar. Podcast available now on the ABC Listen app. One day in June 2015, Sarah Martin received a message on her phone from a stranger. It was about her 21-year-old daughter, Alice, who was travelling solo in Europe at the time. And Sarah wondered whether to respond to that message. And it's very lucky that she did. Sarah and her family tell the story of what happened next in Sarah's book, Dear Psychosis. Sarah Martin is with us today. And importantly, her daughter, Alice Martin, is here as well. Alice, Sarah, welcome to you. Good morning and thanks for having us, Hilary. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much and happy International Women's Day. And to you. Now, Alice, I'll start with you. You were in in, in Istanbul, in Turkey, uh, at the the time that things went really wrong. Can you describe for us what was going on for you? Oh, it was very chaotic. So at the start, uh, it was quite a high. I felt very good about myself, which is actually where the picture for the cover came from. Um, I was alone in the apartment I was staying at and I had a thick black marker and I thought it felt really good to draw on my face and I felt so in the moment. So that was sort of before um, things started getting a bit more hectic. But yeah, that picture really describes quite a, a high feeling for me and it was before things tumbleweeded and got very intense and everything was very overwhelming and dangerous actually. Yeah, that picture is incredible because you can see uh, the impact it would have on your mum as well when she first saw it. Alice, your brain was using the circumstances you were encountering to create this kind of altered reality. Tell us a bit about that, the, the bardo and the bull and how they became part of your experience. So I was quite academic growing up. I loved reading and I'd just read, before travelling overseas, I'd read the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Um, and in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, they describe the bardo, which is this place in between life and death. So after you die, they described you having to face many challenges. And I believed I was stuck in the bull, which was another name for the bardo. And I was encountering all these dramatic situations which were testing me. And I had to stay alive in order to keep other people alive, really. It was quite scary. I had lots of pressure on me because I believed that everyone who had um, killed themselves before was stuck with me and I needed to survive the bardo in order for their spirits to survive. So, yeah, there were lots of delusions that came up just personalised to my own experience. Very tricky. Yeah, really scary and this big, big sense of responsibility as well. Sarah, getting a message like that about Alice, you know, I'm worried about your daughter, please get in touch. That must have been extremely worrying. What was going through your mind as you prepared to travel over to Turkey? Well, we actually wondered when we first got the message 
was it a scam? Is this real? Is is this is our daughter really in trouble, or is this some international um, man trying to to get money or something from us? When we talked about it and we talked to this most amazing man, we realised that Alice was in trouble and we needed to get there and we needed to get there fast. By the time we got there 24 hours later, we met Alice at the airport and we, the first vision that we saw of her was a girl with something wrapped around her head, uh, her dress on backwards with a skirt on top of the dress. And we realised immediately that this man had saved Alice's life. So we feel absolutely overwhelming love for our, our, our lovely friend Hussein, who saved her. Alice, tell us a bit about Hussein, your boyfriend at the time, and the other friends that you made in, in Istanbul. How were they helping you through this? They were just wonderfully present and they knew that something was terribly wrong. Um, so they were looking out for me in all areas. They were putting the bed by the door so that I couldn't go walk about at night. Someone was lying in that bed so that they would wake up. Um, they were making sure I got fresh air outside because the apartment I was staying at was actually underground <laughs> and it was very stuffy. Um, so, yeah, they were very present. They were trying to talk to me at all times and they were trying to have someone around me at all times. And, of course, Hussein reaching out to my family, um, that was just miraculous. He was so supportive. He'd ask me, where have you gone, when I'd go to the bathroom and have a terrible experience alone in the bathroom. Um, yeah, they were all very supportive. And uh, what was it like seeing your mum and your brother Jesse for the first time when they finally arrived on the plane? To be honest, I was in quite a shock uh, because mum didn't have her jewellery on and it sort of confirmed some of the delusions that I was having, that she'd had to have a really hard time to arrive in Istanbul to collect me. So, yeah, I was just really terrified that something really bad had happened. <laughs> yeah. It's an amazing book to read. It's called Dear Psychosis by Sarah Martin and her family, really different chapters written by different people. We're speaking with Sarah and her daughter, Alice Martin, who's been through this experience today. Uh, Sarah, you and Jesse, Jesse was training to be a doctor at the time, so you and Jesse travel to Istanbul. Jesse's drawing on his copy of the, the DSM-5 and his term of psychiatry training. How well equipped did you feel at the time to deal with and support uh, what was happening with Alice? That's a really good question because in the beginning when we were talking about that we had to go over to, to get Alice, I was just going to go by myself. Now, I'm not a great traveller. Uh, Jessie has been travelling a bit and it was the best decision that we ever made. Uh, I could not have left Alice alone by herself and it would uh, to get around uh, Turkey and Istanbul, getting in and out of the airport would have been an impossibility by myself. So by having Jessie there, he actually took a little medical history from our beautiful Syrians and was able to get to the root of the problem. And we were then had to face the fact that something was very wrong with Alice, but we weren't sure. We weren't able to do that diagnosis ourselves. We just knew that she had had some sort of mental ill health episode.
And so you you brought her home. That that brought its own challenges, just getting home on the plane. Mm. But that was just the beginning of the journey for for Alice and for you. How did it go in your family? Your your youngest son Harry was thirteen at the time. How did you go integrating Alice back into the family and and supporting her as well as trying to make sure everyone else was all right? So I'm a nurse. So. My husband, Shane, and I, we'd always discuss that we wouldn't have secrets, that we wouldn't have whispered conversations of things going on around us, that if something happened, we would try and, uh, to the best of our ability, tell all all our children what was going on. So when, uh, before we even left for Istanbul, Harry was aware that Alice, something was wrong with Alice. He wasn't sure what was wrong with Alice. But when we got home and then Alice was admitted to hospital into first the PEC unit, the psychiatric emergency care unit of our local hospital, uh, we told him what had happened. And after she got out of the PEC unit into our care about four days later, I had to do up a sign and I had it in our house. And the sign was numbers of triple O, the emergency mental health numbers, and what to do if something had happened, if Alice was angry when he got home or if Alice had done something to herself or if Alice was angry at him, who to call. Now, I cried after that, but when I told him about it, he was like, okay, right, this is what I do. All right, I'm going outside, mum playing basketball with the kids on the street, see ya. And he was amazing. And it is the resilience of our youth and I think to the credit of our family that we decided within our family to be honest and truthful. Outside mm. of the family, well, that was another thing. We remained silent. And why was that, Sarah? We were scared. We, the stigma of mental illness, uh, we didn't want that to dog Alice. We wanted to make sure that we had a, a diagnosis rather than saying, uh, you know, that she was ill we kept quiet uh, until we had a diagnosis. And even then, only a handful of people knew that Alice had suffered a psychotic episode in Istanbul. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm aware that, Alice, this might might be quite difficult to hear discussed on the radio and to talk about yourself. I I love, too, how there's so much in the book that Sarah Martin and Alice Martin and and the family have written about how proud they are of the incredible uh, resilience that you've shown, too, and the way you've been able to kind of claw back uh, a semblance of reality and, and, and heal because it's such a huge thing to go through a psychosis. Alice, can I ask you what's your recollection of getting diagnosed and retreat receiving treatment for that episode i was quite reluctant to accept any sort of mention of drug induced psychosis i remember saying to my psychiatrist no it's just because i fell in love for the first time and Ugh. that's why um so all that sort of emotion around being diagnosed with some sort of episode it just manifested as a bit of resistance for me I was more like how do I get better what's the things I need to do to be able to sit down with a coloring book for more than two minutes because I was finding it so difficult to concentrate my activities were two minutes of coloring book two minutes of listening to music two minutes of reading a book maybe even less. I was swapping from book to book. So it wasn't so much the diagnosis for me, but like understanding how I could move forward. Um, I was very reluctant to accept any labels. Well, and it sounds like you had a mixed experience with your friends too. Tell us about uh, Loza and how important she is to you. 
Oh, Loza, she is just the best friend I could imagine. <laughs> um, I'm getting emotional. Maybe mum can take over. Loza accepted Alice for who she was. When Alice was at her sickest, she couldn't, she really couldn't read, she couldn't write, she couldn't watch television. Loza would come over and, and just sit and be with her and be in Alice's space and not expect Alice to do anything. Loza and Alice had a few other friends, Sam and JD, that were totally amazing and stuck by her 100% of the time. Mental illness is confronting and chaotic and it is scary. And that's what I think people turn away from. And persistence and patience is the most amazing gift friends and family can give. And Alice has got something more she wants to say. So I think one of the commonalities between Loza, JD, Sam, um, was that they were really able to sit in the moment, be silent, just hold the space. And they were persistent. They didn't give up on me. They were lovely, always there and always open ears, even if I wasn't really ready to talk about anything. Well, and Alice, eventually you were diagnosed with bipolar affective disorder. How has that changed things, having that diagnosis in your life? Well, again, I was reluctant to accept any label. And I initially preferred the term manic depression because I thought that described uh, better the up and down that I had experienced twice in my life. Uh, well, the downs had come about here and then from when I was 15, but um, I kept that under wraps. So <laughs> mum laughs. <laughs> Laugh um, now. <laughs> yeah. It's so true. <laughs> um, yeah. So hindsight is very powerful. And actually, I think the diagnosis is helpful because it, it gives me an ability to connect with other people, to know that I'm not alone and that there are a certain amount of people that do have this uh, bipolar affective disorder. And now moving forward, it means that I can monitor myself, I can monitor my sleep, I can monitor anything unusual, any stressor that's unusual in my life. And that's a real strength for me because otherwise, apart from the monitoring, I'm very much normal, high functioning. And yeah, I'm, I'm quite you know, at my baseline, which is good. Yeah, well, I understand that, you know, you're living out of home and studying psychology now. How are things feeling for you now? How are you feeling about the future? Well, I am very busy juggling work, life, study, and I have a puppy, so uh, <laughs> yeah, she's gorgeous. Um, I'm feeling very positive about the future, so yeah, I don't know what it's going to bring and what doors the book might open for me, but I'm very much happy to hear the reception of the book is quite positive and lots of people are coming out saying that they've had people go through similar things and they didn't really understand what it was about and what sort of things psychosis involved. So that's really positive for me. Yeah. Well, and Sarah, what do you hope for from the book in terms of changing the way we generally approach psychosis and people who've experienced psychosis, but also the, the treatment regimes and the, the institutional structures you had to navigate through? Well, firstly, we wanted to break the silence uh, because we were silent for so long. So by breaking our silence, we hope that others know that are going through this, that they're not alone. As a caregiver of someone that has mental illness, it is very silent. People don't want to out. We really don't want to out our kids. It's up to them to say that they have what they have. I, I think that by others listening to us and hearing that we have grieved. We, in that first year, we grieved for, we thought we had lost with Alice. We weren't sure how high functioning she would become. 
Uh, we weren't sure there was no diagnosis. It takes a long time to diagnose uh, mental illness. Uh, so that's why it took two years for Alice to be diagnosed bipolar. Um, we think she is amazing. We think by speaking, we hope that others feel that they can talk. And if you are out there and you are feeling like you are suffering, please speak to someone or write it on a piece of paper and hand it to someone. Write a card. If you're a caregiver or um, a, a, a grandparent or a mum or a dad and you th you're worried about your child or friend, write them a little note and just say how much you love them and care for them and how much you appreciate them because everybody needs to feel needed. And sometimes suffering mental health, we forget that person needs to be needed and needs to do things too. Yeah, it's a really brave book and it's so illuminating how a completely ordinary family can just have to learn how to go through this stuff together. It's a, it's a really wonderful thing you've done. Thank you both so much for joining us on Life Matters today, Alice Martin and her mother, Sarah Martin. Thanks, Hilary. Thank you. Cheers. The book is called Dear Psychosis, A Story of Hope and Love Through a Family's Journey of Mental Health. And if you or a family member or someone you know needs support with complex mental illness, sane.org is a great place to start. You can call their hotline too. I'll give you that number. 1-800-187-263. 1-800-187-263. Now, we started this program talking about the achievements of older women on this International Women's Day and they have just flooded into our text line. I want to share some with you before we wrap up today. After getting through cancer at 68, I bought a boat and I travelled solo down the Murray from Yarrawonga to the sea. Took three months. Another says, I took up outdoor rock climbing when I was 61. Now I'm 67. My male climbing partner's 74 and amazing. We can climb up to grade 20 and lead up to 18s. We kept climbing during our cancer treatments as well. Lol. <laughs> we climb in the Blue Mountains. And this one is, is interesting. After leaving office work 10 years ago, I fell into house cleaning jobs. So many bourgeois women, often riding financially on a man's wallet, need a domestic because they have back and knee pains, yet they go off to physio or Pilates and seniors tennis while I do the hunky work. At 70, I'm in shamefully rude good health and I pay my own way with no Centrelink. Think about that. That's one perspective. And at 89, my mother-in-law learned how to use a computer, published a book called Made in Australia. She's now 99. It's just an incredible range of achievements. In my 70s, I walked across England to celebrate my 70th. From the Irish Sea to the North Sea, I did the Portuguese Camino. Wow, that is no mean feat. And my new chapter in Later Life, says another, Mandy, is writing children's books and resources. Noisy Nature, my first self-published book, won Book of the Year 2017 from Speech Pathology Australia. You go, everyone. Thank you so much for sharing those achievements with us. From older generations to younger ones on our next episode, moving out of home in your young adulthood has been an Australian rite of passage for as long as most of us can remember. But with exorbitant rental costs, it's become a luxury that many can't afford. What does that mean for the ability of young people today to actually grow up? Does staying at home mean delaying adulthood? And what supports might help people have the best possible experience if they do remain stuck under their parents' roofs? Let's look into that next time on Life Matters. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.